The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. On today's episode, we'll be talking about using your brain when you're thinking about beauty, which is often a lot more difficult than it sounds. Later on in the show, I'll be speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Hall Findlay about the risks and potential benefits of cosmetic surgery. But let's start off with a science-based look at cosmetic products. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined today by Perry Romanowski, who's spent the last 20-plus years researching and developing products to solve consumer problems in the personal care and cosmetic industry. His primary focus has been on formulating hair and hair-related products. He's currently Vice President of Brains Publishing, which specializes in science education and is responsible for the consumer-focused beauty website, thebeautybrains.com. His latest book is It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. Welcome, Barry. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you are a cosmetic chemist. Can you give us a, a bit of a sense of what that is? Sure. A cosmetic chemist is a lot like a chef, but instead of working with flour and eggs, we work with DMDM, hydantoin, and sodium lauryl sulfate. So we actually formulate or put together the recipes for cosmetics. And when I say cosmetics, I'm talking about all kinds of personal care products in the United States. Um, things like shampoos and skin lotions are all considered cosmetics. And that's the kind of things that cosmetic chemists do. Are cosmetic chemists the natural enemy of the marketing department at cosmetics companies? Because you, you make these lovely products and then it seems that PR people immediately attach the most uh, ridiculous false expectations to them. So, so the good products appear uh, not to work at all and the cosmetics industry as a whole is basically seen as horrible people who are deeply <laughs> well, ex exploiting our deepest vulnerabilities. <laughs> the one thing I want to say about cosmetics is that cosmetics, they do have the ability to make people feel happier. And that's why I, as, as a scientist, I don't really mind working in the industry. In fact, I like it because you can have that direct impact on people. I know there are a lot of scientists out there working in the fields of trying to cure cancer and doing important research like that. But a lot of times all of the research is left in the lab and a lot of it is, is failures but as a cosmetic chemist you're actually in the laboratory creating products that people are going to use every day and while the the cosmetic industry and the marketers definitely uh, exaggerate and try to convince you to buy products and spend much more money than you need to the products generally do what they're asked to do so skin lotions will actually make your skin feel better and generally look better. Hair shampoos are going to make your hair feel and look cleaner. So on a, on a very broad view, the products actually do work. Now, the, the things about making your uh, product uh, make you feel like you have uh, younger skin or, or healthier hair, it's, uh, I mean, that's all exaggerations. But the products, uh, from a general sense, they do actually work. Well, there's, there's exaggeration, and, and then there's actively lying. So how, how often do cosmetics companies actually get in trouble for outright lies? It's actually a lot less frequently than you would think. Now, there are, have been some recent cases where uh, mascara companies, for example, uh, they airbrush their 
commercials or they airbrush their uh, advertisements and they've gotten in trouble and they've had to pull those ads but generally uh, the cosmetic industry has gotten very good at what we like to call in our book it's okay to have lead in your lipstick um, we call that them weasel words and the weasel words are a way to structure a sentence or a claim in a way where it it's not actually a lie but it's saying it, it implies something that isn't maybe factual but it's not actually written in as a lie and, and a great example of that would be using the word help so it helps you look like you have less wrinkles um, it's not actually saying it makes you have less wrinkles right. and so those, those are the kind of weasel word tricks that cosmetic companies do now that's that's all cosmetics advertising they all use those words correct generally that is the case yeah um, it's it you see one of the biggest challenges within the cosmetic industry is that the technology uh, is, is hasn't really changed a lot in you know the last 20 or 30 years so it's very difficult for you to differentiate your product from everyone else's product there's certainly a range of products and and some products work better for other people than other products but it's it's really hard to generally create a product that is substantially noticeably different um, than every other product and so the way that cosmetic companies try to stand out is through branding and their advertising and so then the product that, get, that gets bought is the one that has the best marketing story. Which makes it even more difficult for consumers to figure out if there is any difference at all between the products that they want it, to use. Indeed, I, I look at a lot like the wine industry has kind of the same problem, you know, a lot of people can tell a difference between a red wine and a white wine, but between different reds, it's, it gets harder. And the thing about food and wine is that people have a pretty good uh, developed sense of taste. But in the, in the area of cosmetics, we don't have a really good sense of feel and, uh, and cosmetics are supposed to work over time, so we don't have a good sense of whether something's working over time. And so you're affected a lot by the halo effect or the branding effect of cosmetic products. There are regulations for cosmetics, though, correct? And different regulations for drugs than for cosmetics, we should say. Certainly. In, in Canada, Health Canada is responsible for regulating the cosmetic industry. In the United States, we have the FDA, and uh, they're responsible for regulating. Uh, the EU has uh, EU regulations, and Japan has theirs. So the, one of the challenges as a formulator is that the regulations around the world are a little bit different. But generally, countries follow the FDA. And uh, the FDA regulations were introduced in the United States in, in about 1938. Uh, but they're, they're generally, uh, they're very strict about colorants. So colorants, uh, and that's kind of what led to the uh, discussion of colorants in, a, in our latest book about uh, lead being in lipstick. Um, colorants are one of the only ingredients um, in the United States that are regulated the cosmetic ingredient is specifically regulated. You, there are only certain colorants that you can put in your cosmetics. But um, the one law that everyone has to follow in the United States is that it is illegal to sell an unsafe cosmetic. So before you sell your product, you have to be able to prove that your product is safe for people to use. So safe is different than effective. Definitely. Safe is definitely different than effective. But as far as effective goes, the regulations in the United States are by the, uh, the FTC, which regulates what you say about products. And it's illegal to knowingly lie in advertising. And so the, the claims that are made about the products are 
are that way. And you had asked about um, drugs and how drugs are different than cosmetics. Um, there's a really a, sp a specific distinction in the United States about these products. So cosmetics are only allowed to affect the appearance of your skin or hair. They aren't allowed to interfere with the metabolism, for example. So, so products which claim to boost collagen production, those are actually not allowed. They're not really allowed to say those things. And so what you're, what you're talking about is when you see a claim like uh, boost collagen or elastin production, they're really, that's kind of like a puffery claim. And if the products actually did do that, they would be classified as drugs in the United States. And drug te drugs require a lot more testing and they're a lot uh, more tightly regulated in the United States than cosmetics. Okay, so again, we're, we're not worried so much about... Um fraud and lying because there there are actual rules about that it's it's the the weasel words as you said so uh, let's break this down further now you wrote in your book that it's primarily the first five ingredients that were made link concerned about right right if you look at a cosmetic product the way that labeling rules are in the united states and most uh, countries around the world follow this they have to list ingredients in order of concentration when the ingredient is in the product above 1% of concentration, and that's by, by mass. And so the first few ingredients will generally be uh, in order of concentration. And then after that 1% line, we call it in the business, the ingredients are, the marketing people will adjust the ingredients to make the natural sounding ingredients a little higher up so it seems like there's more. Because consumers intuitively know that there's this concentration rule. But they don't know about the 1% rule, so uh, once it gets to the 1% line, any order of the ingredients can be put in. But what that really generally means is that the ingredients, the first few ingredients are really going to have the, the maximum effect on how the product works. Okay, well, there, there's a lot of information in your very deceivingly thin book. <laughs> so uh, we're going to try and cover what we can. And we might as well start with hair, as that's your main field. So what do we need to know about hair that is going to help us avoid making bad purchasing decisions? Well, the first thing you should know about hair is when you see claims about healthy hair, those are really uh, exaggerations because hair is, is not alive. Hair is actually dead tissue. In fact, uh, I always like to say hair is about as alive as your shoelaces. <laughs> so when you see things like vitamins and, and proteins in your hair products, those are all specifically put in the products because marketers have learned that consumers want to buy products with vitamins in them. They don't actually do anything in the product. My advice for hair products, you should always use a hair conditioner. Um, so use a, a shampoo and a conditioner um, because a conditioner certainly will help to make your hair feel better, will make it easier to comb, and it just makes it look better. Your hair, while it's while it can't be healthy or it's, and it's not alive, it can get damaged. Just like wearing a, an article of clothing can get stretched and pulled and, and get holes in it, the hair can essentially get damaged in a similar way, especially if you're coloring your hair or you're blow drying your hair or it gets exposed to you know the sun a lot um, and so what you're going to want to do is when you're getting a shampoo you know find a shampoo that you like to use now a lot of people like to use moisturizing shampoos um, but I wouldn't spend a lot of money on your shampoo because if you're using a conditioner also the effect that your shampoo is going to have on your hair is essentially going to be wiped out by anything by the conditioner that you put in it's a it's a lot like uh, you know when you're 
you're painting a wall, you put down a primer first, and then you put the paint over the top. Right. Um, you don't really notice the primer anymore once the paint is on top of that. <laughs> and that's how shampoos and conditioners are. That's kind of the same thing. Well, is there any product that actually repairs your hair? Lots of products claim to repair mm -hmm. hair, uh, but no. Uh, product, like, you know, the hair is hair is made of keratin, and it has a specific structure. I mean, the keratin proteins are sort of wound together, and then there's a, a layer on top called the cuticle, which is like shingles on a roof. And when hair gets damaged, those shingles will chip away. They can get frayed and you get split ends. But when people talk about being able to repair the hair, that's that's not actually what's happening. It, it would be kind of like if you had a a, a tear in your uh, in your blouse or something, and you tried to fix it by pouring string on top of it. You know, <laughs> um, right. you can you can put protein on your hair, but you if you'd have to to repair it, you'd have to structure it the way it is done on the cellular level, and no product does that. How about the idea that, that salon shampoo is better than drugstore shampoo? Is that true at all? There's no validity to that at all. In fact, the, a lot of the companies that make those salon products, they're the same companies that make the store products that anybody can go out and buy. Um, and if you look at the, the manufacturers, it's, it's, it's tough to know because the, the brands will put their name on there, but they won't, you won't know what the parent company is. But a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of the salon brands are made, by, for example, by L'Oreal. And the other thing you should know is that companies do not have any exclusive right to specific raw materials, for example. And so any company can get a, any, pretty much any raw material that every other company can get. And so... Uh, salon products generally, while they cost more, you will not notice any uh, any difference in them. In fact, they generally cost. Uh, just, generally, you're not spending your money wisely because you can get a similarly functioning product uh, for a lot less money in the stores. I keep hearing about the idea that that if we just stop washing our hair, that it will revert to uh, some kind of natural self-cleaning state. And there's a ton of websites <laughs> online about this. Uh, it's, is that possible? You know, that's a trend that we had noticed in the industry. You know, it's been about, probably been about 10 years now. And in fact, uh, I always like to experiment. And I, did, I went a, a whole month where uh, I didn't wash my hair and just to see what that's like. Um, there's, no, there's no validity that it's going to uh, change your hair structure, for example. Um, hair grows about, about two, two centimeters a month. Generally, uh, you know, if you stop using, stop using shampoo, your hair would have to grow out pretty far before you'd notice uh, any significant difference. And the truth is, you wouldn't really notice any difference because your hair, if you're still styling your hair or combing your hair, you're going to damage it. Uh, your hair is also going to be more greasy if you're not washing it, for example. And so it, it can pick up pollution in the in the air and you know, it'll get particles and things. And so generally, it's not a, uh, a thing that I would recommend, but it will help to reduce some of the damage. You just have to get used to the way your head feels when it's got it's it's a little bit more greasy and it it, it definitely feels different. So. I'm I'm okay with the shampoo. Had to right. ask this is science for the people, and I'm talking to Perry Romanowski, author of It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. So, well, since we're talking about hair washing, there are an absolute plethora of facial washes out there. Uh, so, how much difference between them can there really be? 
Both products, both hair products and skin products, uh, use detergents, and detergents are just surfactants that can help to remove oils. Now, generally for skin products, we use uh, more gentle surfactants uh, because uh, people people typically will feel more uh, sensitivity to detergents on their skin than they will on their hair and scalp. And so the the, the primary difference is just uh, in the irritation ability of uh, the detergents that are used. But you astutely uh, notice that uh, yeah, the the facial products and the body products are cleansers are are generally the same as the hair products. And in fact, uh, when I was formulating uh, shampoos, this was before body washes really took off in the United States. Uh, but one of the when we first came out with the body wash, we just used our shampoo formula and put the word body wash on it, and it was. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Essentially the same product, yes. And actually, uh, if, you look, if you look at body washes, compare a body wash ingredient list to a shampoo ingredient list, and you'll find some striking similarities. I, I feel like we are alternately traumatizing people and potentially saving people a ton of money. So. <laughs> well, we, we do this on the Beauty Brains blog all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor people. Uh, well, what about for acne specifically? Uh, do certain ingredients work better than others? Acne is one of those areas where uh, the products are actually not cosmetics, they're over-the-counter drugs. And in the United States, over-the-counter drugs are regulated by the FDA by these things called monographs. And in a monograph, there are specific ingredients that have been proven to be effective uh, in treatments. And for acne, there are things like salicylic acid or benzyl peroxide. Uh, These are specifically listed in the monograph and the amounts that you can use and even the claims that you can say about those products are specifically listed. So when you're buying an acne product, if it says it has an active ingredient in it, then you can be sure that that product has been proven to be effective. Now, some people's acne uh, uh, is is cured by different ingredients, and so... uh, not every product will work for every person, but the, the the active ingredients in acne products have been demonstrated to be effective. Well, how about retinol? Retinol is an ingredient that is effective for lots of things. It mm-hmm. does have some anti-acne effects. It's also one of the only ingredients that has been demonstrated to have uh, an effect on wrinkles, and it can actually reduce wrinkles uh, when used at the prescription levels. Um, and I say prescription levels because uh, in the United States, uh, retinol is actually a uh, a drug that gets prescribed by dermatologists because it actually has it actually works. And so, so when you're talking about certainly anti-aging products and skin products, if the product uh, actually works kind of the way it says it does then it's probably something that you would have had to get a prescription for because then it's actually a drug. Retinol works for wrinkles. Is there anything else that works for wrinkles? Because uh, many things are labeled as age-defying. Absolutely. And it's a hot area in the cosmetics field because lots of people use uh, anti-aging products because they want their skin to look better. Uh, But the reality is, uh, while there is a plethora of ingredients like hyaluronic acid and uh, superoxide dismutase and stem cells, the actual effectiveness of these products from topically applied uh, products uh, is almost nothing. In fact, um, while retinol 
retinol and, and derivatives of vitamin A, vitamin A can be shown to have some effect. Niacinamide is another ingredient that has been shown to have some effect. But beyond those two, uh, there are very few ingredients that have uh, demonstrable effect um, when it's delivered from a skin cream product uh, topically treated. Now, lots of, lots of these um, ingredients have been demonstrated to be effective in the laboratory. And the way they do that is they get a, a cell culture of human, human uh, skin cells, and they look at the effect that a, an ingredient might have on you know, collagen production or elastin production or some sort of biomarker that's indicative of um, an anti-aging effect. But the thing is, uh, most of those ingredients, when applied to your skin, don't get down to the dermis layer of the skin where the living skin cells are. And in fact, it just languishes in the top of your skin and has very little effect. So ultimately, is there any difference between an age-defying moisturizer and a regular one then? That is typically just marketing stories, yeah. Uh, in fact, a lot of times what what a company will do is take their regular moisturizer and put in some uh, anti-aging uh, sounding ingredients at low levels and call it anti-aging product. <laughs> All right. Well, what's the, what's the best way to avoid wrinkles in the first place? There are really two things that you can uh, do to avoid wrinkles. Uh, the number one thing and probably the number one cause of wrinkles is smoking. If you're a smoker, you're going to get wrinkles and you're going to, you're going to look older and feel older than uh, other people. And then the other big factor is uh, sun exposure. Uh, if you really want your skin to stay wrinkly free, you should wear sunscreen all the time and uh, move move to a climate that doesn't get a lot of sun. That, that helps too. And so up in Canada, you, you guys are Yay all us. right. But if you're going to live in Florida or Arizona, um, <laughs> you'll have a problem with uh, wrinkles. Canada, freezing but unlined. That's <laughs> perfect. Like... Um, well, you, know, you mentioned sunscreen. Uh, there is a lot of misinformation in that area. Absolutely. And sunscreen is another one of these products that seems like a cosmetic, but in the United States, they're classified as an over-the-counter drug. And when something is over-the-counter drug, that means that the active ingredients have been demonstrated to be effective. And so the FDA has a monograph, which... Uh, took them 40 years to publish the final monograph, uh, but it was just actually published uh, late last year. In that monograph, it gives you the ingredients that are effective, and it tells you how you can demonstrate that something has an SPF value and, and what that is. There are active ingredients that work, and so when you're buying a sunscreen and it has an SPF value on it, you can have confidence that that has been tested. So what kind of coverage should we be wearing then? The minimum coverage that people should use is uh, an SPF of 30. Now, if you if you don't like the way that feels on your skin because it can feel a little heavy, uh, uh, an SPF of 15 can be good too. But but when you're getting actually above 30, when you're getting to 50, above 50 is really kind of a waste of time because uh, the amount of UV UV uh, radiation that you're blocking is just gets uh, less and less. It's it's not a linear scale. SPF is not linear. It's a logarithmic scale, and so and so when a uh, a product an SPF of 30, for example, will block say 95% of the UV radiation coming in, whereas the SPF of 50 is going to break uh, going to block say 99%. But when you get above 99, it's going to go to 99.5, and 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 at some point uh, you're not really uh, going to notice a difference. Well, and there have been concerns about health risks associated with sunscreen, have there not? 
you see a lot of this, you know, certainly on the internet, you can see lots of uh, health concerns about products, uh, you know, lots of cosmetics, but sunscreens in particular. And there are some sunscreen ingredients, some active ingredients that have been shown effective, but some people have sensitivities to them. And so, uh, you know, you just have to, that's not a thing that can be generally determined. You have to just use the product. And if you have a, a reaction to it, it's going to be a, a, some type of an allergic reaction. Then that's an active ingredient that you're going to want to avoid. Oxycrylene is an ingredient, for example, that uh, a good percentage of the population, and when I say a good percentage, I'm saying, uh, you know, 2% of the population is going to have some reaction to that. And so people just have to experience that or know that and uh, avoid that active ingredient. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be back with more of cosmetic chemist Perry Romanowski and his book, It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and my guest is Perry Romanowski, a cosmetic chemist who writes on consumer-focused beauty website, thebeautybrains.com. His latest book is It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. Okay, so let's take on cosmetics, and that is a huge topic, but we'll, we'll get in what we can. There are lipsticks that advertise themselves as being lip plumping. Is that a real thing? Well, in reality, uh, no. Uh, ah. There, there are lip plumpers, and there are some products. Uh, the way that a lip plumper works is that you have ingredients that will irritate the skin, and it's a uh, uh, known, you know, known irritants. Um, and so, cinnamaldehyde, for example, is is you put that into a product, and then when it's put on somebody's lips, what that does is irritate the skin, and then that sends the body, uh, you know creates some inflammation in the body, and that is what uh, makes your lips look plumper. <laughs> now, that, that doesn't sound safe. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's mostly, mostly harmless, or at least it hasn't been demonstrated to be harmful, right. but it, it's, it can be, certainly can be painful to some people, and it's not a, not a product that I would recommend. How about the color-changing lipsticks? Uh, and I think there might be a, a color-changing blush, too, that I've seen. They're supposed to change to match your skin. Right. That's, a, that's actually just a chemistry trick. If you put the products on and the products uh, evaporate and that changes the pH, what, what happens is that, that pH change in the product will be responsible for the color change. It really has nothing to do with your your skin or the surface that you're putting it on. But that's all part of the story of that cosmetic product, for example, at where it says it matches the, the color of your skin or the hue that, that you want. But it's really just a trick of chemistry that uh, that doesn't actually uh, change the way that they're, they're saying it does. And of course, you say right in the title of the book that it is not bad to have lead in lipstick. Please explain. 
That was sort of the impetus for writing this book was that on the internet you can find all sorts of concerns about lead being in lipstick. And it as a as a chemist and scientist, it kind of drives me nuts because what people don't realize is that lead is found everywhere. Lead is in your water, it's just in the environment. It's a naturally occurring ingredient. And it's not an ingredient that cosmetic uh, companies put in the products. It, the, the only reason that there is lead in uh, some colorants is because it's naturally occurring in those colorants that are that are mined throughout the world. So the levels of lead that you find in these colorants uh, is low enough that uh, the FDA has deemed that it's not of concern. And if you go through, and, and actually Health Canada has gone through and done the calculations, and they determined uh, if you this would be a problem if you were eating five sticks of lipstick a day, you could get enough lead in you to cause lead poisoning. But the amount of that people use is just so low that it's not something of t- has to be a concern. Um, and if and you're was... eating five tubes of lipstick, you have bigger problems than lead. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. It should always be noted with all, all ingredients, and, and this is true of food, this is true of any chemical exposure. It's not simply the ingredient that is toxic or that is a problem. It's also the amount that you're exposed right. to. So it's it's the it's the ingredient and it's the dose. And so you can't really separate those in figuring out what your risk is. Now, if somebody's really worried about um, whether their cosmetics are going to be harmful to them, I would suggest that they just don't use cosmetics because you don't have to use cosmetics to live a healthy life. Um, but really, there are no cosmetic products um, that are more safe than others. For example, people, people believe that if they buy something that is advertised as a natural cosmetic or or organic is somehow more safe for them. Um, it's not. Uh, and products that say that they are they have no lead in the lipstick, uh, those products are not more safe than just general lipsticks. But this goes back to the idea of, of chemicals just being innately scary to a lot of people, right? Absolutely. And it's it's unfortunate to me, especially as a chemist, you know. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. I, I, one of my one of the most dis <laughs> one of the most disappointing things to me was when DuPont changed their uh, their tagline for better living through chemistry because our lives really are better because of some of the great innovations that we've done in chemistry. But, you know, uh, marketing companies have benefited from scaring people uh, with natural chemophobia. And some of, some companies, that is their marketing position where they'll say what they don't have, uh, no parabens or lead-free lipstick. And they make the implication that products that don't say that on them are somehow more dangerous for them, uh, for people. And that's just not true. Well, you mentioned parabens. <laughs> so those, <laughs> those have been linked with breast cancer, possibly. I'd have to say that they actually haven't been linked with breast cancer, but that is a common myth out there. Mm-hmm. And what you what that is a result of is in 2005 uh, there was a study in which Darby looked at um, breast tumors and what she found in these breast tumors and in actually non-tumorous uh, t- breast tissue were parabens, and it was her conclusion based on some uh, faulty information that somehow that implicated parabens as uh, being problematic. But subsequent scientists have looked at these studies and there really is no evidence and no connection between parabens and breast cancer. Uh, And in fact, um, 
the independent uh, scientific group in the EU who is responsible for looking at the safety of ingredients in cosmetics, they determined, they looked at parabens specifically and determined that parabens are perfectly safe uh, for use in cosmetic products. Nonetheless, people buy products that say paraben-free. They do, and, uh, and in fact, in, in the EU, they're out, uh, they, they've, uh, they put, out, put a law out where you're not allowed to say that about your products. Interesting. Product. You're, not, you're not allowed to make the free-from claims anymore in the EU. The United States, we, I don't think we would ever adopt uh, something like that because no. uh, big believers in free speech and all that. But... <laughs> But you know, buyer beware. Um, I'm always. You should always be skeptical of uh, claims where people are saying free from, because the things that they are replacing them with are just ingredients that haven't been tested nearly as uh, scrupulously. Now I have to ask about skin whitening because that certainly seems unsafe. But but is it? Well, skin skin lightening is actually a huge. Uh, there's a huge market for skin lightening products, uh, specifically out in in Asia and India and around the world. Uh, and the the only ingredient that has been demonstrated to work is hydroquinone, um, and that ingredient is actually skin lighteners are an over the counter drug, and so the ingredient has been evaluated up to a specific level, but. Uh, there is certainly concern about hydroquinone and the safety of it, and the FDA is is looking at data from it. Uh, it's still a, a legal ingredient to be used in the United States. It's been banned, uh, I believe, in the EU, and so you can't can't get that uh, there anymore. But it certainly is a product that is uh, scary to some people, and there are concerns about its safety. But the desire for people to have a product, a skin lightening product, is so high that people are willing to take that risk. So is it a similar process for, for teeth whitening as well, or is it different? No, it, it's different. Uh, the thing that causes, the thing that gives uh, skin color is uh, melanin. Uh, so you have these melanocytes, and what hydroquinone will do, it, it bleaches out those melanin pigments and uh, gets rid of the color. Uh, that's different from, from teeth. Teeth uh, generally uses hydrogen peroxide, and that'll break down the, the colorants and tartar on your teeth. So it's a different chemical process. And the thing about teeth whitening is that that you're applying it to the teeth, which are generally not living tissue, but uh, and in the skin, uh, just below the, the top layer of the skin is the living tissue, mm -hmm. and that's where the, the problem can come in. So is teeth whitening safe? Because we hear stories that it, that it affects your enamel. Sure, sure. It can break down, break down the enamel. Uh, that is one of the concerns with, with teeth whitening products. But uh, really, the, the products haven't been around long enough to determine whether they're going to be of a significant problem. But as of, uh, with the data that we've collected thus far, uh, there, there really isn't a, there isn't a concern at the moment for teeth whitening. Uh, but the products that you can get over the counter, they don't have a very high level of the bleaching ingredient in it, and so uh, uh, it's it's probably not of a big concern at the moment. Uh, with, certainly, with products that you can get at the store, they're also not terribly effective. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the key there as well. Actually, one thing that I found really interesting was your position on toner. Can I can I just sum that up as don't sure. bother? <laughs> right, absolutely. Toner is one of those products that. Uh, was kind of an invention of the cosmetic industry and it, it made for a good story and it, it made women buy uh, an extra product and but 
generally, if you're cleaning your face, a toner is not going to have any noticeable effect. I just need you to know that when I read that part, I, I went into my bathroom and I threw my toner away in anger. <laughs> there you go. Glad we could be of help. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Perry Romanowski, author of It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick. And answers to other beauty product questions. <laughs> so we talk about, we talk about more than just uh, lead and lipstick. We actually uh, the the book is uh, questions from people from around the world about all kinds of beauty products, hair hair products, skin products, and color cosmetics. Now, if people want their their questions answered, uh, they can actually go to you as well. Correct. Right. We actually have a podcast called The Beauty Brains and where we answer questions uh, that listeners will send in and they can just record it on their phone and they send us questions. Or they can uh, go to the to our blog, thebeautybrains.com, and ask a question there. And, and we, we fill the blog with answers to questions that normal people have about their beauty products. Perry, you are fighting the good fight, even when you are dismaying us that there is absolutely nothing we can do. Well, one of the things that, one of the reasons we started the Beauty Brains was because we we didn't want to see people tricked by marketing, and we want to actually create more skeptical beauty consumers. And one of the ways to do that is just to give people information about the products. Now, the funny thing is, I can give people information about their hair products or their hair brand or their skin products, uh, and a lot of people will listen, and they'll know that I'm the chemist, and I know these things, but they'll still buy the brand that they like. And that's the power of branding and because people come to identify with products that they use every day, specifically cosmetics, and no amount of information is going to change some people's minds. But again, those first five ingredients, if you can figure out what ingredient it is that you like, you can go at, at very least by a cheaper brand. Absolutely. One of the things that we recommend in the book is that you, uh, if you're trying to uh, get the best product for you, start with the lowest price of products and then use them and if you don't like them move up to the next price level and keep going up until you find a product that you like now there's really no reason that you have to spend a lot of money on on hair products or skin products and in fact the the prices that some of these cosmetic companies charge are, are obscene um, for example I I was a uh, I was on your, uh, one of your CBC shows, and we were looking at a skin product, which you bought like uh, you know uh, a 25 milliliter container uh, that cost $500. And I know that it didn't cost the company more than $2 to make that product, and so it was all profit. Okay, folks, you need to get the book and then go into your bathroom and throw out at least three quarters of what you've spent your hard-earned money on. <laughs> Perry, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Desiree. And we've linked to Perry Romanowski and the Beauty Brains podcast and the book It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're learning about the science and history of lighter-than-air flight. We'll spend the hour with biographer and science writer Richard Holmes to talk about his newest book, Falling Upwards, How We Took to the Air. We'll talk about the technology of 19th century ballooning and the pioneering men and women who took to the skies and changed our view of the world. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell. 
Okay, so in our interview with Perry Romanowski, one of the things that we learned is that there's only so much that lotions and creams can help you change your appearance. And by so much, I mean very little. So if you're seeking more drastic changes, you might end up looking into plastic surgery. So to explore that topic, I'm here with Dr. Elizabeth Hall-Findley, who is board certified in plastic surgery in the United States, certified by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada, and has a private practice in Banff, Alberta. She's a past member of the Ethics Committee of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and author of the book, Aesthetic Breast Surgery, Principles and Techniques. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you. Now, what kinds of things does uh, a plastic surgery ethics board deal with exactly? Well, actually, the ethics committee and the boards deal with the certification and qualifications of plastic surgeons, Um, and that's their main role. Would there be anything to do with safety? Do you know, the safety part was I chaired the committee for the Alberta um, College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is the licensing body for our province. And they're the ones that look into safety. They set the standards and guidelines and accredit surgical facilities. So the ethics committees were more looking at the individual plastic surgeons and making sure that they lived up to the standards that we wanted for plastic surgeons. So they would be basically complaint-oriented, whereas the College of Physicians and Surgeons were trying to stay ahead of the game, set the rules, and then use an accreditation system to make sure that those were followed. Well, let's uh, let's talk a bit about some of the specific procedures that someone might come to a plastic surgeon about, uh, starting with the facelift. Now, what does that do? It doesn't do as much as people hope that it would do. Um, facelifts will take away loose extra skin, redundant skin, but the problem is that the skin that's left behind is not 17 years old anymore. So the problem is if you were going to make a pair of slacks, you would go out and buy good quality material and then have them made. So the problem is that the facelift isn't always working with the best quality material. So it can make a huge difference. It can tidy a face up so that it changes the way somebody looks on the outside to reflect the way they feel on the inside. Somebody feels tired and and. Sometimes people will look, think of an older person, they look tired, they've got extra skin hanging down around their eyes and you can't really see them very well, so you think they're kind of not there or not paying attention. Open up their eyes and they look bright and then you're more inclined to have a good conversation with them. So you can change the outside to reflect what the person is like on the inside to a degree. And how is it done? What's the process? Well, the process basically is under anesthetic, taking away the extra skin and tightening up what's left behind. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but there's more than just the skin that's the problem with an aging face. It's the muscles, it's the ligaments. So you have to be careful, obviously, when you talk about safety, you have to be careful about not damaging any of the nerves underneath the skin. Now, what's the risk of something going wrong with that process? much. There are sort of minor things that can happen, such as some people are more prone to thicker scarring. There's a possibility of infection. Usually that's usually treated with antibiotics. I think the biggest risk is patients not choosing somebody who is qualified because it's very difficult for the patient to know who is competent at doing facelifts and who isn't. And how would they find that out? 
That's not easy. Now, your family doctor is a very good person to talk to. Um, Phoning and talking to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, whoever is your licensing body for your province or state, they can help you. Now, what you want to look at, for example, is people will call themselves cosmetic surgeons. They're board certified by the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery. Well, that's a self-designated board. That isn't in the list of um, approved medical specialties. So you want to look for someone who has is a plastic surgeon. So you're looking for somebody who is board certified in plastic surgery in the United States and not just board certified. They have to be board certified in plastic surgery because the United States is a little bit less regulated than it is in Canada so that some people will say do obstetrics and then because of the the huge malpracticing, we'll switch to something like doing cosmetic surgery, will call themselves board certified. They may be very good at obstetrics, but they're not board certified in plastic surgery. Canada, on the other hand, has the FRCSE after your name, which means Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Canada. And that is our regulating system in Canada that makes sure, again, that we are certified, have done the exams, the training, it's a supervised um, system to make sure that we know what we're doing and then we get approved to be a plastic surgeon. So some who does cosmetic surgery doesn't necessarily a plastic surgeon. They can be good at what they do, but they haven't gone through the same rigorous training and approval system. In my time on the internet, um, which is lengthy, I have seen some downright frightening post-facelift images. And I'm I'm talking about celebrities here. So one assumes that they have the money for a good surgeon, a good board certified surgeon. So is there is there any other reason why those people may end up looking like they do? You know what? A lot of them don't go to board certified plastic surgeons. I don't know where the celebrities get their information from sometimes because, I mean, some do. But I totally agree with you. There's some alien-looking people out there, and that's not what plastic surgery is all about. Plastic surgery has two roles, reconstructive, which takes the abnormal like a cleft lip and tries to make it normal. The cosmetic part takes our experience in the reconstructive part and takes the normal and tries to improve upon it. We're not trying to make people look different. We're trying to make them look better. And so the problem is, and, and, and that's our biggest complaint, is that There are a lot of pictures out there. There are a lot of results out there that weren't performed by truly trained and accredited plastic surgeons. And so it gives the procedure a bad name rather than... And so it's frustrating for us because I, I hear even my colleagues that will go somewhere which is less expensive to have their surgery in a different country, for example, or go to somebody who isn't properly qualified, as if, for example, putting an implant in is just putting a breast implant in, and it's way more complicated than that. There's a lot more thinking and planning and experience to make those decisions that go into that. Well, you mentioned um, going to other countries to do that. Uh, That's, I guess, plastic surgery tourism. Is that the only procedure that people would go for, or is it it pretty wide-ranging? People will go to different countries for a lot of surgery, plastic surgery or otherwise. And you know what? In these in other countries, they are really good surgeons, physicians in those countries, and they have exactly the same problems that we do in our country, which is that patients are often they go on the internet, they read all this stuff, they they go to a website that sounds fantastic, and how can a patient understand the difference between a board of cosmetic surgery versus the plastic surgery board and so it's very difficult for them and they have to ask if the person is trained in plastic surgery even that might not get them the right answer but 
for example, in Mexico, I've got some very good colleagues who are excellent plastic surgeons, but I'm not sure they're the ones who are advertising to the Americans just north of the border. And you really want to make sure that you get a properly qualified, well-trained surgeon. Frankly, price is not the best way to choose surgery. You know what? If you go to pay less to buy your shoes, not only are they not going to last very long, they're not going to feel comfortable, and you're going to get not very good value. Well, maybe you get value for your money, but sometimes it's not always that you get what you pay for, but really you very rarely get a good product if you don't pay adequately for it. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with Dr. Elizabeth Hall-Findley, plastic surgeon. All right, let's talk about uh, another procedure, Botox, that is in the news pretty much constantly at this point. How, how much, well, how does it work? Well, Botox is one of the brand names, one of the early brand names that came out, and it's technically a neuromodulator. So what it does is it paralyzes muscles. So that can be kind of scary, botulism poisoning. If you have enough botulism toxin, you can die because you can't breathe anymore. So that's pretty scary. Now, the amounts that we use in medicine are not dangerous. They're dangerous for that particular muscle only in that they stop that particular muscle from working. Now, they always recover too. So it's actually a very safe way of doing what the surgery cannot do. Now, creams and lotions and potions don't do it either, but surgery can reposition extra loose skin, for example, but it can't stop the wrinkles from forming. So using Botox, for example, I use it because when I'm thinking, people think I look like I'm being really crabby. Or I'll go to a party and people say, well, you don't look like you're having any fun, and I'm just thinking. So if I use Botox, I actually look less angry. So I don't want people to be thinking I'm angry all the time. I'm not. And so Botox can take away that look by temporarily paralyzing the muscles that create the angry wrinkles. Temporarily paralyzing is vaguely terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, but it's such a small amount. You'd have to have, I, I mean, there you'd probably have to pay an absolute fortune to get enough that would cause you a problem because the amounts of botulism toxin that are used and the word neuromodulator is a word that maybe the patients are not going to understand what that is exactly, but it modulates or changes the way the muscle functions. Now, you don't want to use so much Botox that you have no expression in your face, as some celebrities have done. You want to use enough just to make the improvement that you're looking for. And so it's a very, very safe amount that's used. All right. I want to fit in this one because um, this is actually what you specialize in, uh, breast augmentation. So maybe run me yes. through that process. How does that work? You know, a lot of what I do is breast reduction. And so, really? Re- yeah. And so a lot of people don't realize that plastic surgeons probably do more breast reductions than breast augmentations. So really it comes down to some people's breasts are too big, they're uncomfortable, both physically and psychologically, and people who don't develop much in the way of breast tissue is the same. A lot of my patients are after babies. They've had their kids. they lost the volume from being pregnant and breastfeeding. And they kind of just, you know, life's not over after having babies and they want to look good. They want to look good in clothing. They want to look good out of clothing. And so much of how we feel as people is how we think we feel. And it's not about their partners. And I'm always telling their partners that it's, they often don't understand, for example, why their wife would have these babies and want to have breast implants. 
but it's all about them feeling that they look good in their container, that their body looks good. People will work out to look good. People do their hair to look good. People will put makeup on to look good. That's the way we are in society, whether you're in the deepest, darkest Africa where they'll um, change their skin with scarification to where we will put all sorts of cosmetics on. So, again, people go too far. Absolutely. But, you know, the patients who do the best from cosmetic surgery are the people who psychologically need it the least, which is a paradox. Now, what is the difference between uh, saline and uh, silicone implants? All implants have a silicone envelope. But what happened was um, in, 19, in the late 1980s, the, and, and this is a really interesting sort of phenomenon that we do in all aspects of life, the rheumatologists who see autoimmune diseases were seeing a lot of patients with lupus and noticing a lot of them, because they're young to middle-aged women, had implants. And so they put two and two together, they thought, and, well, breast implants, silicone must be causing disease. But actually, when the, they took the implants off the market and then when they dust settled and the real scientists, the ones who understand epidemiology and statistics, which is not me, um, they actually looked at the same age match controls of young to middle-aged women and the same number that had implants got lupus as the same that didn't have implants. In other words, it was an association but not a cause and effect. And we do that all the time in our lives and it's not just breast implants but implants are safe but again the problems with implants are mechanical not health and so there are mechanical problems. Ripples and folds. Saline implants, they have the salt water inside the implant, they have a lot more problems with ripples and folds and can kind of look like that waterbed on the chest kind of look. So most of us think that the implants that are filled with silicone gel have a much more natural look. They're not natural, though. So they have they have issues, no question. Well, one thing I actually read recently that I found interesting uh, was that when we see those pictures of women uh, where their augmented breasts look too far apart, that's not necessarily due to a botched surgery, right? Oh, absolutely not. Usually that is they look too far apart because their implants are placed under the muscle. So... Breasts aren't under the muscle, but implants are sometimes placed under the muscle because, as I said, they're not natural. So in order to try to camouflage their unnaturalness, their um, implant edges, the ripples and folds, they'll be placed under the muscle so that the top part of the breast will be covered by an extra layer so that they don't get that speed bump look. So when you're asking about implants that look too far apart, the problem is when they're placed under the muscle, the muscle inserts into the outside edge of the breastbone. So they can't go across the breastbone. So when you see some people with large breasts um, who have, um, I'm thinking of a celebrity, but I'm probably not allowed to name her, but when she puts her breasts together, you see this gap. And it's not that the surgeon did a bad job. It's that because the muscle insertion is on the outside edges of the breastbone, the implants can't cross that area. So under the muscle has its advantages, extra padding, but it has its disadvantages in the wide space. And also they tend to move more when somebody's working out in the gym, for example. Now, I had, I had thought I heard that um, it also had to do with um, just some women's breasts are, uh, their natural breasts are farther apart. And so augmentation just makes that look even more pronounced. Absolutely. And you know what? We all think breasts are in the same place in the body. Well, they're all in the chest. But some people have a high footprint and some people have a low footprint. Some people have wide footprints. Some people, the breasts don't come to the edge of the chest. Also, the actual footprint, and if you think of all four borders of a footprint, 
they're very different, and you're absolutely right. Some people have very wide breasts. Some people have low breasts. Some people, where the underwire of a brassiere would sit is almost the same level as their elbow crease. Other people, their breasts are, sit much higher. Now, when the bra, brassiere companies, and I'm not going to name one either, came out with their double push-up bra system, they made my life particularly and a lot of us as plastic surgeons, much harder because patients are all looking for that double push-up bra look. Right. Patients don't look like that naked. In fact, they look pretty silly if they look like that naked. And so I still have to tell a lot of patients that even if you have an implant, if you like that double push-up bra look where it looks like your breasts come right off your collarbones, you're still going to need a double push-up bra. And I think often it looks kind of odd. So we've we've spoken a lot about uh, physical safety, uh, but I want to talk a bit more about sort of the, the mental and emotional part. So are there safeguards in place for, for people who might be getting plastic surgery for the wrong reasons? And I'm saying wrong uh, in quotes because I don't exactly know what that would mean. Uh, are there healthy versus unhealthy reasons to get plastic surgery? Like do plastic surgeons actually evaluate on those terms? There's a lot of different questions. And yes, there are um, good reasons to have plastic surgery. And you can start with the little kids whose ears stick out. They do not need their ears pinned back for any medical reason. But you know what? Once you pin those kids' ears back, and you usually do them about age five, kindergarten, they may be teased at school, and they go back to school after having had their ears done. Nobody even remembers that they had ears that stuck out because you don't see what's not there anymore. That is pure cosmetic surgery, and I think everybody would agree that that makes a huge difference in the lives of little kids. So you can extend that out to all of us want to look better. Now, how far are we going to go to look better? Well, we all have our different levels. I mean, I think that people who climb mountains are crazy because I'm afraid of heights. And I live in a place with lots of mountains. I like looking up at them, not down from them. So other people would think I'm being silly and not stupid. But Or people who ride motorcycles. Some people are going to say that's too dangerous. But it's a, it's a decision that they, it's an informed decision that they want to make. Cosmetic surgery is not going to save somebody's social life. It's not going to save their romance. It's not going to change their career. And so I think it's wrong to do cosmetic surgery if you think it's going to do something that it won't. If you feel good about yourself, you will feel a whole lot better if you feel you look better. We're human beings. We we appreciate beauty. I mean, that's all part of the way we live. Now, if you take it too far and do some really weird things that some people do out there, mm-hmm. like some of the scarification that people are doing now and putting funny things underneath their skin, which is not going to last, that's really kind of, I think, kind of going too far. But then who am I to say? I thought tattoos were going too far. But so I'm in a different generation. So then if someone was thinking about getting one of these procedures um, or, or one that we haven't mentioned, what would you suggest? Like, are there are there good, credible, uh, non-agenda-driven places to look for information on the internet, for example? Well, I think that um, from in North America, the Canadian Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, the Canadian Society for Plastic Surgery. In the U.S., the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, the American Society of Plastic Surgery. So look for the word plastic. In the rest of the world, the International Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, ISAPS, it's a very good one to go through because you know you can look for somebody in your country, and I would advise everybody, don't travel too far for the plastic surgeons. There are good people in your area. You want to have surgery in your area because sometimes things do go wrong. They're never, I don't care how good your plastic surgeon is, there will always be a few, very few, patients where something goes wrong and you want to be close to your plastic surgeon. 
So I would tell everybody there are good plastic surgeons in your area. Don't feel that you have to travel for the, the best, whatever that is. Get referrals from your family doctors. Get referrals from friends. Now, they're not always the best source. The Internet is not always the best source, but starting with somebody like the International Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery is a good starting point, and then you can start doing some research. But you know what? There are good plastic surgeons in your area. Elizabeth, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. And you can find a link to Dr. Elizabeth Hall Findlay and her plastic surgery practice at the link on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.